You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. My guest today is Sarah Tabor, Sarah Mansfield Tabor. She's written a quite extraordinary book, which is really what brought her to our attention and to my attention. The name of the book is Born Under an Assumed Name, and it's the memoir of a Cold War spy's daughter. It's published by Potomac Books here in the Washington area. Sarah traveled uh, with her parents and with her father uh, during the time that he was a covert intelligence officer for CIA. And it really is about Sarah's growing up during that period. It's a wonderful, beautifully written memoir of a young girl coming of age, if I can, if I can say. But it also focuses on a particular aspect of that growing up, and that was her father's, the nature of her father's work and the secrecy surrounding it. Uh, Sarah went on herself to get a doctorate at Harvard, uh, in cultural human development. She has taught uh, widely published literary criticisms, pers- personal essays, memoir and opinion, has written several books, and now teaches writing and mentors writers here in the Washington area. Sarah, welcome. Thank you, Peter. I'm happy to be here. Sarah, as I said, the book is an extraordinary book, and that it's a, it's a wonderful memoir and a beautifully written memoir of your coming of age. And I think that uh, what made it particularly poignant for me was that we share many of the same years, many of the same memories together. Mm-hmm. And also, your growing up was here in the Washington. This was your home, mm-hmm. this area. So, Sarah, tell me how you came to pick this title. I want to get into the book and, and, and what that was about, particularly the secrecy aspect and the effect on your family. But it's, it's such an interesting title, Born Under an Assumed Name. Yeah, I, I love the title just because it does sort of have many connotations. Um, one of those is that I was indeed born under an assumed name and that my whole family was living under a false surname when I was born. Um, so I was born in a U.S. Air Force hospital. So on my birth certificate, it does say Sarah Tabor, but... 
in the in the outer world I had a different last name um, and then the born under an assumed name also refers to um, just the fact that my identity was problematic all through my childhood because of moving from country to country and sort of the overall atmosphere of growing up in the CIA. Sarah, when was your father in the CIA? I think he joined around uh, 1950 and left in about 82. Okay. So. Well, that would be about a 30-year career, 32-year right. career. Mm -hmm. And he was, do you remember, where did he serve? Where were the places that you accompanied him on? Uh, we lived in uh, Taiwan. I was born in Japan. We lived in Taiwan, uh, the Philippines, Borneo, Vietnam, the Netherlands, and Germany, well, that's, as that's well a, as the U.S. That's a long list. Now, were you with him on all those tours? I, the uh, Vietnam I visited during when I was in college and worked there in the summer, and uh, Germany was um, at the end of my college time. So, and that was all the others. And we would, and I'll him. come to that. He was a. Uh, do you know what, what he, what his capacity was? What the nature of his work was as an agency officer? I know the very broad outlines. Um, he was 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 a covert operative. Um, he worked on propaganda. He worked on recruiting agents. He. Uh, uh, was involved in all sorts of operations to undermine uh, communist China. That was his main bailiwick. Um, and did I say he, he worked on infiltrating China as well? Um, so recruiting people with knowledge about China and uh, finding, arranging for people to go into China to try to undermine and sabotage yes, the government. Sure, yeah. And the latter, of course, the propaganda would be lumped under what they call covert action, in other words, mm -hmm. attempting to persuade people. And you, I remember the, the, you related when uh, we were talking earlier several anecdotes mm -hmm. uh, that occurred that were clearly sort of let you have a peek mm -hmm. at that side of the, the, the curtain came up a bit. I remember there was one incident that occurred in your, in your home, as I recall. Mm -hmm. Can you just recount mm -hmm. that for us? Yeah, that happened when I was six or seven, and we were living in Taiwan. And I just awakened in the night um, to the sound of, of someone rapping at the door. Uh, this is in the middle of the night. And um, I heard my father, you know, open the door. And then I heard a Chinese man's Chinese and my father's Chinese. And... Uh, and got up, got up out of my bed to go check on what was going on, and I got to my father's study, and in there was a Chinese man looking very anxious, sweating, uh, obviously extremely worried, and both my parents were in their bathrobes talking to him. And my mother rushed out and said, Sarah, I'm taking you to sleep in Andy, my brother's room, tonight. You've got to, you know, you're gonna have to sleep there. And I squawked and, you know, protested, and she made me a pallet on the floor. And she rushed out again, and for the only time in my life, locked the door. And so this was completely um, out of the blue. I had no idea what was going on. I was just really, up, you know, upset that I had to sleep in my brother's room. And when I got up in the morning, um, it was clear that my bed had been slept in, or at least roiled around in, and the Chinese man was gone. 
But I later found out what had happened was that my father was hiding a Chinese um, newspaper editor who was writing articles against Chiang Kai-shek. We were, we were both supporting Chiang Kai-shek on the one hand and trying to undermine him on the other because he was a tyrant. Um, and so this was an instance in which my father's association with someone both supported them and put them in danger. Um, and in fact, a number of the newspaper people he worked with there were later jailed. And that was one of the things he carried with him his whole life, that by his supporting them, he'd, he'd really aided their being at risk. I know you uh, earlier, I think, uh, we were chatting, and, and you mentioned your very, very strong feelings on Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Did you have occasion to, to confront your father with those feelings? I think that was, uh, that was a very typical experience for many kids and adults mm -hmm. during that period. It was such a controversial war. Yeah. But did you actually, was there a, a period of confrontation that you remember with your father? Yeah, I, I, I know several people whose families just burst apart over this issue, and some kids even managed to get their fathers to leave the agency over this issue. My father um, was very, very liberal, and by the time this, when I was in ninth and tenth grades in Washington, he was becoming, to, he was starting to express doubts about our policies, at least in the family. And so when I got more and more vehement about the war and going to protests and all of that, he just was quite, kind of quietly supportive. So it wasn't a confrontational thing. I, and I, that's when I really picked up, okay, Pop is, is very ambivalent about this word. Quietly He's supportive really of you. Supportive you said, of me. Yes. Yeah, yeah he didn't yeah. go out and protest himself. Sure. But I kind of did it for him, I think. He was... He, he sort of enjoyed it vicariously because he himself couldn't do that. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, as you as you uh, recount these stories, uh, I, I can only hearken back to my own time. I, I mean, I too was a father. I had four daughters, mm -hmm. and uh, lived through that same period, yeah. and uh, certainly experienced much of the um, ambivalence, my personal ambivalence about the war, mm -hmm. and could see it play out in my uh, very much so in my children as they matured. Yeah. So it was it was a period of great stress on families, I think, particularly those overseas, mm -hmm. and uh, experiencing that as being sort of government people, mm -hmm. uh, and of course in your case, CIA people. In fact, Peter, there's something interesting in the people I've talked to. There's a real difference between the agency offspring who were of age during the Vietnam War and those who were earlier. Yes. And the ones who were earlier don't have nearly the ambivalence about their father's involvement as the ones who, who were sort of um, involved in the war. So it's, it's really interesting. That is interesting. I know you have described and touched on your, your father's own feelings about his career, that it was a calling, that he wanted to help the country, but that you saw a sort of growing, uh, almost a disillusionment towards the end of his career. Mm -hmm. And I, you, you alluded at one point to something about a last straw, that mm -hmm. something was the last straw for him. What was that? Mm -hmm. um, well, let me, let me talk about two things. One is, one, uh, prior to the last straw, last straw was um, 
when my parents were in Vietnam and I visited them in college, I was working at the embassy myself as an embassy intern. And at, the, at, at lunchtime and after work, I would join the operatives around the embassy pool. And that was when I got to see the complexity of the whole Vietnam situation in that I've never, I've never seen such cynicism as among those agency employees. Basically, they were all, you know, drinking Coke and swimming and drumming their nails waiting for the Viet Cong to arrive while the ambassador was saying we were winning the war. And it was, you know, I could see the cynicism in my father and in the other people there. And, you know, that's that I could tell that his ambivalence was growing. So that was one time when I really sensed that in him. Now, the last straw was when my father was posted to Germany. He was in Bonn, and he was given the task by President Reagan to basically find evidence for, the, for an announcement Reagan had made, a big announcement Reagan had made, that these massive um, demonstrations in Germany against nuclear weapons and our... our um, our aggressive stance in the world were concocted by the Russians. So he was basically, and he knew, and everyone knew, those were homegrown, sincere demonstrations. So to be asked to sort of concoct intelligence was just the last straw for him. He, he really did believe in the truth, and it just incensed him, and that's, you know, he'd, be, he'd been thinking about retirement, and that was kind of, okay, I'm getting out. I think that you see that your father's role as an intelligence officer mm -hmm. in operations mm -hmm. as having a particular effect on your family. Mm -hmm. Now, you have spent an entire book describing this, mm -hmm. but can you, in a few words, summarize what that was? Yeah. Um, as you say, like a lot of other people who grew up with internationally mobile families, you know, I had the, both the exhilaration and the challenges of moving from place to place and moving from culture to culture. But the special part about growing up with a covert operative father is that you're, you are growing up in a culture of secrecy, stoicism, and silence. And although my family basically did pretty well, um, this culture of stoicism in particular what did have ramifications in my family in that there was um, kind of an atmosphere of emotional repression. Um, my father, spies aren't really allowed to have feelings, and so they're, they're constantly um, putting on a good face and, and um, covering any anguish or anxiety they're having. Um, and then there was, as, as um, a family in the diplomatic corps, my father had what's called official cover, um, we had to sort of be little ambassadors from America, and that meant we were, we were supposed to be on perfect behavior and, and be very courteous and always put a good face on things. And that um, meant that some there was a lot of repressed emotion. And when you're moving from place to place a lot, there are a lot of stresses. And we were taught to be very <laughs> stoical and adventurous and, you know, just forge ahead. And while that was good in many ways, uh, 
it later, the, the repression later came back to haunt us. And I think everyone in my family at some point um, needed to process the losses they'd gone through. And, and, and those, that, uh, those, those feelings come out one way or another sooner or later. Oh, do you think that um, in being little ambassadors, um, but knowing that perhaps there were other things going on in the family, in other words, I'm, I'm sort of looking at this secrecy business, mm -hmm. would that really be so different than someone with, I don't know, Bank of America or something else where they also have to represent their organ? It's an organizational mm -hmm. thing. It almost mm -hmm. takes you back to the man in the gray flannel suit or something. In other words, mm -hmm. Everybody represents the family as being perfect and happy and harmonious, right. but there's something that's going on or, or maybe relations with the headquarters back home aren't so good. In other words, right. I, what I'm getting at here a little bit is many families have secrets mm -hmm. or, or things that, that they don't present to the public. They present mm -hmm. the face of the organization sure. they're with. And, but do you distinguish between those families and the peculiarity of being in a, a, a CIA family, as you uh, will call it that. I've, um, I've heard, you know, in the 50s and 60s, it was, of course, very common for fathers and men to be very stoical. I mean, that was the, the commonplace in the culture. But I think it's accentuated by, you know, working in the agency. Um, and I've heard from a number of other people whose parents, whose fathers were in the agency, that their fathers were very silent, didn't talk about their feelings, didn't talk about their work, of course, because they couldn't. But it, it, um, this kind of silence has a kind of ripple effect in that I think often things that could be talked about aren't. There's just kind of this culture of the father being quiet. And a lot of these people I've heard from really felt like they didn't know their fathers, that they'd really lost something important. Um, I was lucky in that my father and I were very close and he was very emotionally supportive to me, but other people have told me who didn't have fathers like that, that you know, working for the agency meant their fathers were just very distant and removed. So I think that can be something that happens in a family where silence is emphasized. I, I know you refer to other people uh, with similar experiences. Have you, since you've published this book, have you heard from others who sort of knock on the door or call you on the phone and sort of recognize themselves in the book? Yeah, I've heard from a lot of other um, agency offspring, so to speak, um, and have gotten the full range of, of perspectives and experiences from oh, it was just one grand, fabulous cocktail party, and oh, I learned to be so resilient and to make friends anywhere in the world, and it was a great adventure. Um, to um, my father was poisoned by the, by the counterintelligence in the country I lived in. To um, my father became dismayed by one of our policies and complained about it to his boss and was forced out to very depressed fathers. Um, and a lot of people also talk about how their fathers were very stoical and their mothers carried the emotion, that the mothers were the ones who were feeling the stress, having to cope. Um, they kind of got dumped with all the stresses because um, it is a very stressful job. I, 
Um, and I certainly felt that in my father, just there's a lot of anxiety involved. You, you're doing things that are risky, dangerous, uncertain, and there's anxiety in the household, and it's registered. Well, let me ask you a question I'm sure you're confronted with uh, whenever you discuss your past and, and the book, and that is, when were you aware, or when did you become aware? It may not have been an announcement. It may have just been a coming to consciousness of, of this, this secret side to your family and the nature of it. In other words, mm -hmm. um, the, the observations just, you've just made uh, certainly are observations that were made about many fathers of that period, certainly the 50s and, and even coming to the 60s, that generational thing of fathers being distant and not playing as active a role in the lives of their, of their children and the mother bearing the emotional burden. But when, in fact, uh, you, you, you describe a very almost idyllic kind of existence in the first uh, couple of countries you were in, but then at some point there was this dawning realization. I wonder if you can, you can describe that. Yeah, well, over time my father became more and more concerned about the work he was doing and, um, and disillusioned. He became more and more disaffected. Um, and concerned about putting other people at risk, uh, concerned about uh, intelligence being misused for ideological reasons or political reasons, um, concerned about uh, some schemes that were pretty outlandish being supported in the agency. Um, and so he became, he always believed in, in the intelligence, the importance of having an intelligence agency, but he became very fraught and and conflicted about some of the things he was involved in. And over time, I could, could see that more and more in him. And as I went into my teens, um, you know, it was clear to me he had problems with the Vietnam War, just as I did, sure. just as many mm -hmm. people did. Mm -hmm. But um, And then I also found out what he did. And so he began to come out more into the open about his complex feelings. And shared those with you. Right. And uh, let me just go back, if I could, though, to, the, to my question, which was, do you recall when uh, you had a realization of, of what he did and it was not what you thought he really did? In other words, was there a point, I'll say point in time, when, oh, my goodness, mm -hmm. you know, or, or your parents sat you down and said, this is what your father does? In other right. words, can you, can you go back and is there yeah. a, a placeholder there of some kind? Right. Well, my father told me what he did when I was um, 15, and he was going off on a mission by himself to Borneo, and he was really tired of lying to his children. Lying really got to him over time. He really couldn't bear it by the end of his career. Um, and so he told me when I was that age, and I, frankly, at the time, I didn't really take it in it just kind of added to the glamour of our lives we were you know we were traveling all over the world and we were little ambassadors and this just kind of upped the ante on the mystique and thrill of it all but later um it was just a creeping realization of the real stress he had been under and and what a difficult fraught place it is to work um you know you go into the agency with high ideals you want to save the world and then immediately you're in an agency that involves secrecy, lying, 
um, misrepresentation and doing things that are morally complex and you're you're in the stew and any thoughtful person I think starts to get conflicted feelings and that's you know that's what I saw in him hmm. did you uh, you know it's interesting I noticed that, that you ended your book uh, uh, with citing Francis Bacon's poem of truth Mm-hmm. Which is interesting when you think the agency wall, is, of course, says know ye the truth and, and shall make you free. In other words, mm-hmm. both of us. What what led you to end on that note about truth? Oh gosh, I just want to believe the truth emerges in the end, and I I'm and the whole book is so much about the age, you know intelligence work as seeking the truth while concealing the truth. And I just think that's a really interesting and complex problem. And, um, and I, I guess I like to believe agency, the agency is always seeking the truth and trying to act on it, but sometimes it doesn't. And that really concerns me. So just the whole area of truth is close to my heart. Any other thoughts about the agency or the nature of the work, just from talking to people who have, who have served and are willing to open up their minds to you to a degree to talk about not mm-hmm. this operation or that, but, but the nature mm-hmm. of the work. You know, I've heard more from the children of the operatives and less from the operatives themselves. Mm-hmm. I'd like to talk more with the operatives, but I've heard from a lot, as I said before, a lot of of offspring and and really heard some very uh, you know concerning stories like of people whose for instance people whose fathers were sent to Vietnam for long periods and um, experienced very traumatic things there and then became alcoholics and came back and the family broke up for instance um, and another woman talked about one time her father opened up about what he had done um, in South Asia, and she said it just moved her to tears, the kinds of stresses and experiences he's, he'd had. So I've gotten, I you know, when you're an agency kid, nobody's telling you their father's in the agency. You, you're totally alone. And what I've gotten from this is just hearing from lots of people whose experiences were also complicated, fraught, wonderful, and terrible. I mean, so that's been very interesting. Well, listen, it has, Sarah, it has been a delight speaking with you today. Again, uh, Sarah Tabor, author of Born Under an Assumed Name, The Memoir of a Cold War Spy's Daughter. It's a very moving story and a very beautifully written one. Thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you, Peter. It's been a pleasure. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you. And uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you.